following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Um, so Romans chapter 11, uh, very much focused on something about God and his character, and specifically about God's faithfulness. And so let me read uh, verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter 11 as we focus on and, and really look at, at who something of who God is in his character and nature and being. I ask then, has God rejected his people, uh, speaking specifically of Israel, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So at the present time, there is a remnant chosen, uh, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend bend their backs forever. Um. If you've been with us as we've gone through the uh, chapters 9 and 10 of Romans, you know that Paul is talking here about uh, what do you do with Israel? What do we do with the Jewish people who largely had rejected the gospel? And so he's been answering that question at, m- at many different levels. And he, uh, in chapter 11, really comes to his conclusion. He kind of makes his final case and his final point. And he has really two points and this week we're going to look at the first point in 1 through 10. The next week we look at his final conclusion about Israel. Um, and his conclusion here is he says, you know, as we look at all this, does this mean that God has rejected, has thrown away his people, Israel? Uh, and really to get the context of it, we need to look at the, uh, the last verse of chapter 10, which says this. Um, Well, actually, let's look at two verses, uh, verse 16 and then verse 20 and 21. Uh, It says, But they, Israel, have not obeyed the gospel. So God's made every provision to bring to them uh, the truth of who Jesus was as their Messiah. Uh, But they have not obeyed the gospel. Uh, For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then in verse 20 he says, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask. But for for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands 
to a disobedient and contrary people. And I just love that picture of God. And you can picture God as a father reaching out his hands to Israel. And you know, you kind of get the picture when a child's first learning how to walk, and you get one parent on one side of the room, and they're holding the child, right? And dad goes across the room, and he holds out his arms, and he says, you know, walk to me, right? And, uh, and the idea is that the child will take a few steps, and they'll try to reach out for the arms of the father. And that's this picture of God saying, you know, I, all, all day long I've been reaching out my arms to you, uh, waiting for you to come to me. But he says that, that Israel has been a disobedient and contrary people. And those two words are, are powerful words. The first one has the idea of uh, someone who will not allow themselves to be persuaded or someone who refuses to believe. Right? Powerful word about Israel. They refuse to be persuaded. They, per, they refuse to be moved by all that God has given them. Uh, the other word has the idea of um, uh, to speak against, uh, to gainsay, to contradict, to declare oneself against someone else, to refuse to have anything to do with them. So God says, I'm holding my arms out to this people who refuse to have anything to do with me, who refuse to consider my words and my longing call for them. And so Paul naturally asks, uh, you know, has God rejected them? Uh, maybe God should. Maybe because Israel has been so stubborn and so obstinate, and in the end, when Jesus himself came, they so rejected him, maybe God should reject Israel. And even in our day, we, we come down 2,000 years since the cross, and we see that t- to this day, Israel has remained quite stubbornly set against the gospel. Uh, The people of Israel are still to this day, for the most part, not Christians. And the question is, what is God's place in history for Israel, Uh, especially from the cross onward? Is God done with Israel, and is his purpose and program with Israel finished? And of course, throughout history, a lot of people have have attacked and and come against Israel. Um, Oftentimes, uh, as Christians, I'm mean, not necessarily true Christians, but as people who claim Christ, uh, who say, well, God's done with Israel. And he's replaced Israel with the church, and God no longer cares about Israel. Well, Paul asked that question, is it true? And his answer is, uh, uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. God has not rejected Israel. Um, he has uh, not thrown them away. And Paul gives a few reasons why this is true. His first proof is himself. He says, I myself am a Christian. So I'm proof of at least one Jewish person who God has not thrown away, uh, that God has not rejected. Uh, But his proof goes beyond that. And he says this. He says, By no means, for I am myself an Israelite, descended from Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Uh, God chose Israel. And one of the reasons that we know God is faithful to them to the end, he will not reject them, is based on his choice of them. 
And the word for new, as Paul uses it, especially in Romans, is a word that speaks of God's election, his choosing of Israel as his people uh, from beforehand. All right? So it wasn't something God came on the scene and he looked at the teams, looked at all the, all the countries and all the nations, and he picked Israel. But he picked Israel beforehand. He picked Abraham ahead of time uh, based on his divine election and choice. And so he chose Abraham, and in Abraham, all of Abraham's offspring, to be a special people. And if you remember back in Genesis, God promised to Abraham that he would be specially blessed, that God would make him, uh, would give him a land, would make him a great people, would, he would become a nation, and this nation would be God's chosen people. So God chose Israel uniquely as a nation bearing the mark of his, of his own possession. So uh, no other people on earth can say this as a, as, a, as a people group, right? So Eskimos can't say we're God's chosen people as Eskimos. Okay, Chinese can't say we're God's chosen people as Chinese or Thai people or um, Americans, you know, even though sometimes Americans think they are God's chosen people. I can say that because I am one. Uh, this idea that we're a country, you know, America is a, a country, a Christian nation. Well, that's not true. Only one nation has ever been given that designation as a people specifically chosen by God. And that was Israel, right? So God chose them, and he chose them beforehand, uh, which means God chose them even though he knew what he was getting, right? He knew... Because uh, God can see, he can foreknow, he can know things ahead of time. He knew what he was getting himself into. He knew what he was choosing. Right. So when, after 2,000 years of stubborn resistance when it comes to the time of the cross, Jesus is, uh, God is not shocked or surprised at how Israel acts. Right? He chose them knowing what they would be like. He chose them but what's significant about God's choice here is that um, he commits himself to this people by his choice. Right? He pledges to them his blessing, his protection, his providence, his care uh, to Abraham and to his offspring. Uh, in, in many ways, what God does here is very much like our wedding vows. For those of you who are married can look back and remember the day, maybe it was a long time ago, remember the day when you made a promise to this person, right? And it goes something like this, I pledge to love you for better or even better yet. No? For better or worse, worse, right? Which, and maybe we should explain this more when we're actually doing the vows. What that really means is, I pledge to love you if things go well, and you turn out to be everything I dream and expect and hope you will be. Or, if not, if you turn out to be my worst nightmare, I still pledge to love you. Okay, That's what the vows actually mean. Okay, If you didn't know that, it's going, oh my, I didn't know. <laughs> Nobody told me. Right? For better or worse. Right? Well, God says, I pledge my commitment to Israel for better or worse, knowing there's going to be a lot of worse. But he still made that choice, right? So God is faithful to his choice. He's faithful to Israel um, because it is based on his choosing, 
not on their behavior, uh, not on what they do or how they live. Um, it is God's free choice, um, regardless of what comes. And he binds himself to his own choice. So because they are his chosen people, God binds himself to that. And he says, therefore, you know, has God, has God, will God reject Israel? Paul can say, absolutely not. God cannot and will not ever reject Israel as a nation, as a people, a people group, uh, who are his. So it's important that uh, as we look at God's activity, God's hand in the world, God is obviously in this age working primarily through the church. And Israel has in many senses been set aside. But Israel has not been abandoned. Uh, Israel is is also traveling through history, and someday we'll see next week, God uh, will do another great work in Israel. He's not done with them. Uh, so God's faithfulness is based largely on his choice, his free choice of his own grace to pick these people as his own. Um, but it goes on beyond that, and he says also that he, he says, uh, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, how he prays to God against Israel. If you remember, Elijah was a prophet uh, of Israel who... Uh, during the time of Jezebel and Ahab, Israel was in a was a mess, and largely was was worshiping Baal and other idols, and very uh, very messed up. I mean, they were. This is the worst. Okay, this is not the better part. This is the worst part in terms of Israel's history. And uh, and so Elijah prays this. He says, "Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars." And I alone am left, and they're trying to kill me. Uh, Elijah had lots of reasons to pray this, right? Uh, and, and being a prophet, he, you know, he was fearing for his life. And uh, during that time, uh, they had killed the prophets. They had torn down the places of worship. They were not interested in worshiping God. Uh, they were not following his laws or his commands. And uh, so Elijah prays. Uh, really after the pattern uh, of Moses. And if you remember way back in the, when Moses comes off the mountain and the, the people were not following God, they made the golden calf. And uh, God says to Moses, uh, these are wicked, sinful people. I've made a bad choice. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. Right? And of course, Moses intercedes and says it's a bad idea and God shows grace and he does not destroy them. Elijah's going, God, I think you made a mistake. <laughs> I think you should reconsider that plan right now. I think you should wipe them off because they are horrible. You should reject them. You should start over. But, but Paul says, what is God's reply? Literally, the word has the idea of a divine response. What is the, the divine answer to that, to Elijah's prayer? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, Paul says, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So uh, Paul says and argues 
that God is faithful in keeping a remnant who are following. And just as in the days of Elijah when God had raised up 7,000 faithful followers, even though Elijah didn't know it, God kept a remnant. And even during that horrible, wicked time, there were a handful of faithful followers who were obedient, who were not bowing their knee to Baal, who are worshiping God. And he says in the same way, in the present age, God is keeping a faithful remnant of Jewish people following him. Uh, and those people are chosen by grace. Now this gets a little confusing because we just said that all Israel was chosen by grace. Now there's more chosen, and that's true. And Paul teaches that even among the elect, there are elect. Right? So Israel as a whole, as a nation is chosen by God as a special people on earth, as a nation who bears his name and and carries his special blessing. But that promise and that election did not guarantee individual salvation for every Jewish person. Uh, Because the requirement for, for salvation, Paul says, is faith. And is receiving God's word, is receiving God's promise. And, God, and Paul says they clearly haven't done that. But God has, out of the elect, chosen an, an even more elect group who he is redeeming according to grace. And he makes it very clear that this group are chosen and are saved by grace, not apart from works. And the problem with Israel all along had been their uh, refusal to let go of the law. They were convinced they could be good enough on their own to earn and merit God's favor. And uh, all along, Paul has argued that that's never been the case. We can never be good enough to earn or deserve God's merit, God's favor, God's blessing. That it has always been a matter of God's kindness and grace to Israel and, and, and to us. And so um, Paul says, they, they have been chosen, elect, set apart for salvation according to God's grace, according to God's um, kind, gracious selection to them, not on the basis of their works. So this is a group of people who understood they could not earn salvation. They had to receive it by grace. And so... Uh, largely, it was not the Pharisees and priests and scribes who were part of this group. They were the ones who firmly, stubbornly held on to the law. But Paul says God, nonetheless, is saving some, and he is working in the lives of those who would receive him by, by grace through faith. And it is God's free choice. Um, God's election and grace go hand in hand. And it means that God is never compelled or obligated to save somebody because of how they live. God is free to choose by bestowing grace on those who don't deserve it. And certainly that was true of Israel. And out of all of Israel who were elected as God's nation, God is electing some to be his saved people. And throughout history, from from the cross onward to the end, uh, Paul assures us that God is keeping a remnant of Jewish people saved. Uh, somebody here may be a Messianic Jew, a, a Jewish person who's following Christ. And I know people who fit in that category. God is saving some, even though not all. Um, and so uh, God is faithful also 
because of his grace. God is faithful because he chooses, but God is faithful because he chooses according to grace. Um, You know, in a business contract, uh, in in a business contract, you are required to be faithful to that contract. But faithfulness in a business agreement uh, has very narrow definition, right? So if I enter into a business agreement with you and you say you're going to make 10,000 widgets and I say, if you make 10,000 widgets, I'll pay you $100,000. We've made an agreement and if we're faithful to that agreement, you will keep your end of the bargain and I'll keep my end of the bargain. And we can call that being faithful, but it's a faithfulness that's very narrow and defined on each of our own individual performance, how well we do what we said we would. Um, but the, the covenant, the, the faithfulness of God is not based on a business agreement. right? It is, as we said, it's really based more on a covenant-like marriage where God commits himself to us, not on the basis of what we do, not on the basis of how we perform, but really on the basis of his own kindness and grace. He wants to be in relationship with us based on grace, on his kindness, not on our efforts or our good works. Perhaps a better illustration of this really would be the covenant we, come, we enter into as a parent with our children. right? Because even in the best of marriages, you know, we... we it should only be a one-way street. We should commit to that person for better or worse. If we never get anything from them, we should still love them. But there is kind of this sense of reciprocal something, right? That it's supposed to be a two-way street. But with children, uh, all that is wiped away, right? Nobody says to their little one-day-old child, you know, I love you and I, I want to commit myself to be a good parent, to raise you up and to love you. Because I see your great earning potential, right? Uh, and, and we've seen this, you know, with sometimes with uh, tragic stories of child child stars and child actors, where it looks an awful lot like that's exactly what's happened, right? Parents have poured into their kids, learning how to sing and dance, and develop their talents, hoping they can cash in on it. And we look at that as as really horrible, as, as a, the worst kind of parenting really using your kids to your own selfish gain. And we know that that's not how it works. We are to commit ourselves to our children uh, regardless of what they do. No matter how successful, how failure, no matter what comes of their life, our commitment is to them. It is by grace. Now, of course, we can argue, well, we didn't actually choose our children. We get stuck with them or they get sent to us or something. Um, And we don't... We don't choose out of our four children which one we're going to show grace to. Uh, But God in his wisdom and his election and kindness has chosen some based on grace. He's not, as a parent, we are in a sense obligated. It's a joyful obligation, but there is this responsibility to love all our children. What God chooses freely, he's never compelled or obligated. It is his free choice to show kindness and grace. And so he does. Um, and so our, the faithfulness of God is in no way based on us. It was not based on Israel. His faithfulness to them was based on his own pledge of commitment to them. Okay? And that's what makes God faithful. 
God is a faithful God. And He is faithful for those two grand and glorious reasons. One, because He chooses. He, he obligates. He commits Himself to us through His promise. Secondly, that promise and that choice is made totally on the basis of grace. That is, not on what we have done, but simply on His own free will to choose us. So, He can say of Israel, My faithfulness to Israel is unending. I will not reject them. I will not reject them. And if that is true uh, of God with Israel... Imagine what it means for us, right? Imagine what it means for us. Is God faithful to you? Well, if you are here this morning because you have responded to his call of grace, because you have by faith trusted in what Christ has done, and you have become his child through the work of Christ, not by your own effort, uh, you are assured God's faithful care. He is faithful to you. Will God ever reject you? Will God ever go, oh, you know, you just sinned the 3,432nd time. I'm done with you. Praise God, never, right? Never. He does not keep count. He doesn't keep score. Uh, Each time we sin, it is a fresh and new sin before God because all the past ones are forgotten and covered with the blood of Christ. And we can bring that sin before the cross and have it washed away again by the blood of Jesus. There is no limit or end to the extent of His grace. God is faithful. Will God ever stop looking out for you? Suppose you go through a time of great discouragement and despair and you're not really being a very good Christian. You're not really being a very good son you, like Israel, are wandering away, is God going to lift his hand of care off of you? Never, right? He is faithful. That doesn't mean he may not let you stumble uh, in order to teach you, to discipline you, but he will never withdraw his hand of grace and love upon us. He is faithful to us. He is faithful. Uh, He watches over us continually. And regardless of our performance, because of his choice, because of his commitment to us, God is faithful. But there's another side, and there's more to this, and as we look through this passage, uh, I like this part. The second part gets a little harder, right? Because while God was faithful to Israel, uh, the the language of the next verses gets gets harder, right? He says, what then? Okay, what's the conclusion of all this? What then? What should we say about Israel? Well, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, he says. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Forever. It's actually David's word out of the Psalms. Paul quotes it. And Paul is not afraid to um, twist Old Testament passages to his advantage, but he quotes this one word for word. Uh, or at least in that word, 
um, God's hardening of these people is forever. Now you might ask, well, where's the faithfulness in that, right? Well, there is faithfulness in that. God is faithful to his promises, right? But he is also fair to our choices. He is fair to what we choose and we want. So he is faithful to his own choices, but he is fair to our choices. So let's see how this works with Israel. He says specifically that Israel has failed. Well, what exactly was Israel's failure? Uh, he says they were, they were not able to obtain what they were seeking. Well, what was it Israel had, in Jesus' day, up to Jesus' day, had been seeking diligently, fervently, earnestly? Well, they had been seeking righteousness. They had been seeking righteousness. And they had come to believe they could find righteousness through keeping the law, that they could do this, that they could so live that they would be able to stand before God uh, in right relationship with him based on their own effort and works. And Paul's been saying through the whole book of Romans, you missed it. Okay, you, you were looking for rightness, you were looking for righteousness, you were looking for right relationship with God, but you cannot get there down the path of the law. You can only get there through the work of Jesus. Only by receiving the righteousness, the good works and deeds of Christ, can you be made right with God. So he says the Jews looked for it, could not find it. Only the elect obtained it. Only those who were chosen by grace, not by works, through faith, had found the answer and had come into right relationship with God. So they had failed in the very thing they had searched so hard for. Um, and as you look back through Romans chapter 9 and 10, we find the reason for their failure, the reason they had failed. Uh, and uh, he shows that God has given Israel every chance, right? Every chance. I won't go through the whole argument, but go back and review verses, chapters 9 and 10. In fact, it's interesting, in chapters 9 and 10 and, and 11, Paul has about 30 Old Testament quotes. Uh, and the reason almost every other verse in this section is an Old Testament quote. And what Paul is saying is, look, the Old Testament has explained this in absolute precise detail. It has explained the Messiah. It has explained his coming and his purpose and his death. And it has explained your own hardness and refusal to receive the gospel. God has spelled it all out. He has pointed in every possible way to the truth. He has revealed himself in every way he could. But in the end, Israel failed because they refused to receive what God had revealed. Right? They chose blindness. So God gives them this overwhelming vision of truth, and Israel says, I don't want to see it. And they chose to close their eyes to the truth, to put their hands over their face, and to refuse to see all that God had showed them. And that's why in verse uh, chapter 10, verse 21, he says, All day long I've held out my hands to this disobedient and contrary people, this people who refuse to listen who refuse to acknowledge Jesus is the only way. That has been their choice, to close their eyes, to put their hands over their ears, to harden their hearts. Right? 
So what does God do with that choice? Well, God, in all of his fairness and love and faithfulness, allows them to get what they want, right? He gives them uh, freedom to go down the road of their choice. Uh, And he says, you want to be blind, I'll make you blinder. You want to be deaf, I will make you absolutely stone deaf. You want to harden your heart, I will make your heart permanently hardened. God is faithful and he's fair in giving people according to their own choice. Uh, They chose this for themselves. And God says it is fair of him to seal that choice uh, permanently. That's serious words against Israel, against this chosen and elect people who had had been given every chance to come to know and follow Christ, but had chosen to to reject the truth and refuse God. And uh, certainly every human being is faced with this exact same choice. And it's interesting, and uh, what's fascinating to me is that God in His grace, the worst sins in the world are never a problem for Him. God, and, and I've done prison work, and I've been in prison cells with murderers who uh, have done horrible things, horrible things, but who found grace, who found forgiveness, right? Because they would receive the work of Christ. They would welcome the message of, of the gospel, right? Our sin is never a problem, no matter how great it is, Israel's sin was never a problem. All their idolatry and rebellion against God was never a problem. The cross could have handled that. Um, Our skepticism is never an impossibility to God. And I mentioned last week, uh, people like C.S. Lewis and other skeptics who, uh, who wrestled against Scripture, who are determined to prove it wrong, right? But because they were willing to uh, look at Scripture and measure it against truth, because they were willing to think about its message and and seek what was true, uh, God could save them. So there's no skeptical mind that God can't overcome if their only object is their skepticism. But God says this, when it comes to a stubborn heart, that is the sin I cannot overcome. Right? Uh, when Jesus said, you know, there, there is an unforgivable, an unpardonable sin. And it's the sin of blaspheming in the Holy Spirit. It's the sin of refusing uh, to see the revelation, the light that the Holy Spirit brings to shed uh, light on the truth, to make the gospel apparent. When you close your eyes to the Holy Spirit, when you close your heart to that spiritual sensitivity, you seal your fate permanently. Right? There is nothing that can overcome stubbornness. Uh, stubbornness, by the way, is a polite word for pride. <laughs> now, it's not that we're all not stubborn. We all are. But this kind of stubborn defiance against God will get you in serious trouble. Right? Uh, you know, If you're here this morning and you've heard the gospel, you've heard the message, you, you have considered Scripture... But you say, I just am not interested in the facts. It's just not for me. Beware, right? 
Because Paul, uh, Paul says that God will give you, in fairness, what you wish. Right? And you will seal your doom. And Paul makes it clear that this doom is forever. Right? Uh, there is no turning back when you finally and completely refuse and resist God's grace. He says, it's, he sets you in that, that stubborn hard-heartedness forever. Right? Um, praise God, though, that if you're here this morning and you have in any, in any degree responded to Revelation, at any level, you have heard the Spirit convict of sin, and you have felt the pain of that, and you have at any degree responded to it. Uh, you're different than that, right? God has given us who know him a spiritual sensitivity, a tenderness to him. Now, you may have never heard God speak. You may never hear his voice in an audible way. You may not ever feel these great moves. But I'll tell you what, if you know Christ, if you have received his word, if you have responded in faith to it, you have eyes that see. You have ears that hear spiritual things by the Spirit. And you are sensitive to his leading. Whether or not you feel it or not, you are. Right? Praise God for that. For the fact that God speaks his word to us, and at some level our spirit hears his voice. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they know me. The way we got to Christ is because we are spiritually sensitive and we have ears that hear. I remember back in my church that I pastored in the, in the States, it was a very rural, very rural farming community and up in the mountains of southwest Colorado. And uh, when I first went there, there were 12 whole people in the church. And, uh, and I thought there were maybe only 14 whole people who lived in the whole like vicinity around the church. It was very rural. And uh, we had uh, got to know this old rancher. He's about 80 years old was born and died on the same plot of land, same house. I mean, lived his whole life. And this guy was hard. I mean, he was just hard. He had lived his whole life wrestling cows and out in the cold in the spring, you know, calving and feeding in the middle of winter. And it had just made this guy just tough and hard. He was like just the old worn-out leather shoe that just was about as stiff and tough as it could get. And he started coming to our church, and he'd sit in the back row, and he, he kind of half-shaven, and, uh, you know, uh, tobacco juice kind of running down his chin because he was chewing tobacco. And uh, at, at the end of the service, he'd come up, and every other word was some swear word as he'd tell me about, you know, whatever. He was just hard, you know, 80 years old, and he had never in his whole life ever been in church, never heard the gospel. And from my eyes, I thought, this guy is a hard case. This guy's never going to get saved. I mean, how is God ever going to get through this stubborn, bullheaded, hard-headed, 80-year-old rancher? You know, It was amazing. As I would preach the word and share about Jesus, this guy would sit with his t- tobacco-stained chin, and he would just weep. And you just see t- tears come to his eyes. Right? And I saw that there was this huge spiritual sensitivity and this guy who had this very hard outward shell, but in his heart there was an incredible sensitivity to the things of God. And with tears, he, he got leukemia and on his, in the hospital with tears. He, he prayed to receive Christ. And just with joy, it was like a little child uh, who found the Savior. Right? 
because there was a spiritual sensitivity. And praise God, we have that if we know Him. Uh, but we can kill it. You know, you can, uh, you can, even as a believer, foster a spirit of stubbornness. You know, don't let that happen. Uh, value and treasure the spiritual sensitivity that gave you life, that sets us apart from the world, that makes us his chosen remnant. Um, because God has touched your life, and he has committed himself to you, and in faithfulness he will hold you, and he will speak to you, and he will melt your heart, and he wants to uh, make you soft. Uh, so that you can be a people who respond to his voice and his leading. Right? Uh, that also is a permanent state. Right? When we yield into him, when we hear, when we respond, it is also a permanent state of walking and experiencing the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that that you are this kind of God who is so incredibly good and faithful. And you keep your promises. Uh, You pledge your love and care to people who do not deserve it. But in your grace, you show such kindness to us. And Lord, I thank you that, uh, that if we have Christ, we have ears that have heard. And you've given us a wonderful sensitivity to your spirit, that your spirit bears witness with our spirit, and we know truth, and we see your face. And so we come on mornings like this to worship you because we long for your presence, and we want with our spiritual eyes to see you and to exalt you and to give you praise. So help us to do that even now as we worship, Lord, that we would encounter your presence as you dwell among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.